name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. Hi there, listeners. I hope everybody is having a good summer. We have had a long, wet June here in New York State, but things are finally drying up and people are back in the woods. I know it's been a shaky time of year with the weather and the markets, but hopefully production is picking up for everybody. This month, for my part, I've been on the road a lot. I've been down in the Atlantic cedar stands of the Pine Barrens of New Jersey and in southern Delaware, up through Pennsylvania and New York and Rhode Island, all the way to New Hampshire. A recent trip to New Hampshire took me to the White Mountains, which is actually not a place that I've spent that much time, and I really enjoyed being there. It was so beautiful and sunny and scenic, and it got me thinking, um, because we're at that time of year when there are so many people in the mountains who are enjoying the various recreational activities, camping, you know, uh, the things people do in the national forests in the summer, and I did a lot of this on my travels as well. I love camping when I travel for work at this time of year. But, you know, it got me thinking that I think people don't often see what's going on behind the scenes with the forests that they enjoy so much from a recreation standpoint. Part of why I love traveling to forests for my job is that I get this unique perspective on just how many different organizations and interested parties you have thinking about forests in a place like New Hampshire. I mean, you have industry, of course, you've got your industrial landowners, you have your small private landowners, then federal lands and the National Forest Service, you have your state lands, the New Hampshire Division of Forest and Lands, Uh, you've got the Audubon Society, the Appalachian Mountain Club, other conservation organizations. Uh, And then you've got academic foresters from places like Dartmouth and University of New Hampshire. And then you've got equestrians and people that ride mountain bikes and skiers and people that have ATVs and snowmobilers and hunters and the Game Commission. I mean, you know, this is a lot of different people with different interests in the land base. And a lot of the land that loggers work on or academics research, uh, it's not necessarily right off the interstate. So a lot of the decisions that are made about our, our forests and the rationale behind those decisions is largely invisible to the public. They call the forest products industry the invisible industry for a reason. Uh, it's not necessarily easy to see what's going on with our forests and how it affects everything else. So I was thinking about all of this when I stopped off at Hubbard Brook. The Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest is in the White Mountains, and it's a place that a lot of people don't know exists, but that has been hugely important for people who are interested in forest, forest research, and for the general public. Hubbard Brook uh, is a very historic forest that was established as such in 1955, and it's the place where scientists basically discovered the relationship between silviculture and the watershed. It's also where they first documented the effects of acid rain. Um, There's a ton of research on birds that has taken place there over the years, on nutrient cycles in forests, and just a a lot more amazing seminal research that that got its start there. 
the forest is about 3,000 acres and it's kind of bowl shaped in the White Mountains. Hubbard Brook runs through the middle of it, the actual stream. And it's this beautiful forest where people camp and do a lot of research. And when I was there, it was just a really amazing place. So when I visited, my guide was a PhD student and researcher named Elizabeth Struder, who is currently studying at Dartmouth, but lives and works at Hubbard Brook. And what she's studying is the ramifications of the future extinction of the ash tree, particularly what other species will be affected when the ash tree goes extinct. Liz has a biology and entomology background, which is useful for trying to figure out what lives underneath ash trees and what will happen to the critters and plants uh, that interact with ash when the ash tree is gone. Liz told me a bit about how she got to the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest, and she also explained what biogeochemistry is. So my, my advisor, Matt Ayers, who worked with Laurel, Great. is one of the PIs of Hubbard Brook. And mm-hmm. so he's... What is PI? It's a principal investigator. Okay. So um, he's one of a bunch of professors that... Mm-hmm. Uh, do research here under a National Science Foundation grant. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm paid under. That's what all of them are paid under. As one of the principal investigators on this grant that focuses mainly on the integration of biogeochemistry and biodiversity, mm-hmm. we do research under this sort of umbrella of, you know, and the question of what's going to happen to the forest when ash die are. Yeah very essential to sort of the combination of biogeochemistry and biodiversity that you know are are can you tell me a little bit more about biogeochemistry Mm -hmm. i've never heard that term yeah it's just um i mean if you think about soil chemistry and soil ph and um just sort of like the non-living parts Mm -hmm. of sort of like forest ecosystems or any ecosystem Mm -hmm. um biogeochemistry is the recycling of carbon and nitrogen Mm -hmm. and all the elements that are essential to life but are not life i asked her so you know why study ash why this tree why now so i would have sort of described myself as a conservation biologist Mm -hmm. um previously during my master's i studied um an endangered beetle and to me, this is really a conservation question, um, and I think that as young scientists go forward, I think that a lot of us are more interested in sort of these bigger applied problems, mm-hmm. of which the loss of ash is a big one. Yeah. And and so to me, I for my PhD, I was looking for a way to involve myself in a conservation project that was data driven and was something that had applied applications. Mm -hmm. And so that this project really fits those criteria for me. I also just love ash. I think there's so few, there's the two big ones right there. I keep looking over at them as as if I'm talking about them, (laughs) which I am. (laughs) But, um, and I'm trained, uh, I did my master's, obviously I said I'm an endangered beetle, but I'm a trained taxonomist and and insect taxonomist. So. okay. 
I, a lot of the work I do is about insects anyway. Um, normally I have been studying how to save them, but in my PhD, I, I mean, I don't, nor will I ever really study how to kill a, a species. And, and one like EAB is not really within my realm of, you know, with any, anyone's really realm of knowledge to, to exterminate it. We all pretty firmly believe that there's not an extermination path for mm -hmm. the Emerald Ash Borer. We are in many ways too late and we yeah. expect the complete extirpation of ash in North America. We spoke about the future of the ash tree, which uh, doesn't look too good. So are there areas where the ash is being, you know, particularly preserved? Not that I know of. Uh, I mean, individual homeowners can choose to have their trees treated. Right. But in a forest setting, I don't think anyone is trying to do that because when you introduce the pesticide, it'll keep the tree alive but kill anything that tries to eat it. Right. So in a yeah. way, it's not so the most, it's not a sustainable solution yeah. in any way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Are there any pesticides that don't have those secondary effects? Not that I know of. Um, beetles are also extremely hardy in general. Yeah, so they're right. really <laughs> not... It, it has to be sort of something particularly strong to, yeah. to pull, to kill a beetle. So. I mean, are there projections for when they think uh, ash is going to be gone? I don't know as a whole because there are a lot of ash um, and a lot of different species of ash. But um, I can speak for here. We know that the emerald ash borer is within 30 miles of here and mm -hmm. we expect it any day into oh. this into this forest and and in a lot of ways I feel really privileged to be doing this project because I think that I may be the last person to mm -hmm. to do a substantial project on these trees in this right. forest. One of the most interesting results of Liz's labors so far has to do with trillium, a small rhizomatic flower. Uh, rhizomatic means that it has a really different way of uh, growing. Its its root system kind of looks like a potato. I have a really big experiment going on right now comparing uh, the biodiversity of ash to other trees because in one way we sort of look at this question as does ash really matter? Because from a biological perspective, maybe all of the things that eat it and rely on it can move to other hosts, other mm -hmm. tree hosts, and survive. So one hypothesis is that ash are a redundant species and they don't particularly matter in you know the scheme of the ecosystem. Mm. But on the other hand, it may be that ash are um, you know harboring a lot of unique species or harboring you know certain biogeochemical properties that. Uh, benefit the ecosystem in irreplaceable ways. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at that by, um, I have plots set up that are ash dominated and I compare them to four other tree species, the others being uh, sugar maple, yellow birch, and American beech. Mm -hmm. And I have 60 of these plots in this forest. I'd be happy to take you one yeah, to yeah, one I'd later. So I measure a lot of different um, uh, species variables within these plots. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, um, I mean, I measure a lot of things below ground. I measure um, 
soil invertebrates. I measure um, soil nitrogen and a lot of biogeochemical properties. Um, I've been uh, counting and um, enumerating a spring ephemeral species called trillium, mm. which is probably the biggest most surprising thing that I've found so far in my research is that trillium grow more abundantly under ash hmm. compared to these other tree species huh. and that's you know kind of a double whammy because yeah. trillium are endangered in a lot of places they're state endangered huh. in a lot of places um, and they're they're a beautiful really important flower um, and so I'm now, one of the big questions is figuring out why they're more abundant under mm. ash compared to other trees. Mm. Um, there are a lot of explanations that are both related to ash and not related to ash. Mm. One of them being that um, you may know that ash um, go through leaf expansion later than most other trees mm. because they're ring forest species. I didn't know that. They, it's about two weeks later which is a big deal to, yeah, to the yeah. stuff in the undergrowth. Like basically the things in the un understory are getting like two extra weeks of sun. Huh. And in at least in this mixed forest, it's the latest leaf out tree and all the huh. other ones have a peak leaf out of approximately two weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. So that's really important yeah. to the biodiversity. And we think that that may be a key driver to why right. the flowers are doing so well under them. Hmm. But it's unique in other ways too. Um, Below ground, um, I don't know if uh, you're familiar, but uh, trees have um, associates with fungi underground mm -hmm. to help their um, root uptake in, in nutrients and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And there are two sort of big classes or types of these fungal associates. Mm -hmm. And the one that ash has is unique here. Um, there are only two species of tree that have the um, mycorrhizal association. It's called arbuscular, if that matters to you. <laughs> um, but only sugar maple and ash have that type of fungal associate. Hmm. And so below ground, that might mean that um, decomposers, other insects, the rate of decomposition, all of those things could be different under ash compared to other trees. Hmm. And that's what I'm investigating now. Um, and that may also matter for whatever nutrients the flowers are getting too. They may need those particular fungal associates right. to be around them. We don't know that. It could be. <laughs> That's just a hypothesis. So, um, and sugar maple is the other tree, which is also in my study. So I'm right. sort of comparing it like, is this about the fungus or is this about the tree or is this about the light? You know, like there are a lot of reasons to think that you know, we, right. And so it's the same question, like, does ash really matter? Like, are these mm -hmm. ecosystem functions being provided by ash or mm -hmm. something that is related to ash that's still gonna exist after ash dies, right. so. And so when you're there, are you taking samples of mm -hmm. the soil? Like what, I can show you breakdown? some samples too. Yeah. Like, um, I have, so th this barn is ours too. That's sort of my, sketchy office <laughs> but I have samples in there um, that one of the samples that we just took yesterday is um, there it's called a Berlazi Tolgren extraction mm -hmm. and it's just 
you take a big chunk of leaf litter, mm-hmm. put it in a pillowcase, and bring it back, and <laughs> it's That's got bugs in it. <laughs> complicated name. For, for such a simple <laughs> yeah. thing. Uh-huh. Those are the people that invented the extraction process. <laughs> but um, the idea is that there's all these little tiny bugs inside leaf litter that are really important decom- decomposers. Um, mm-hmm. And all those little bugs are also extremely cryptic and tiny. Um, so the idea, which is, this is a little grim, but, um, (laughs) you put them Mm -hmm. in this funnel that has a really hot light over it. And I'll show you this setup. It's in Mm -hmm. the barn. Um, and so when the insects are put in there, when all the leaf litter is put in there, the insects are sort of shocked by the heat and the light and they try to move down. Mm -hmm. And so it's a funnel and at the bottom is a jar of ethanol. So they go down and down, down to get away (laughs) and then they fall in the ethanol and then we process those samples for diversity and abundance. Okay. Um, and so we get things like little beetles, mm. like calembola, like centipedes, um, mites, mm. like all of those, um, most mostly insects and, and spiders. Mm. And um, they, uh, I'm reconstructing this food web because mm. it may be that the food web, and I do have some early evidence to suggest that the food web is quite different under ash compared to other trees, which Mm. might mean a lot for um, the, you know, ecosystem function. Of course, species extinction is something that takes place as a part of a big picture that extends beyond silviculture and poses some really hard questions for us. Because we're still trying to figure out sort of the basic question of like what's going, like what's different about different trees. It's kind of crazy to think about, but a lot of, um, a lot of these questions haven't really been addressed in a mixed forest mm-hmm. because it is so, it's a lot of work. It's a, it, it took me an entire summer to set up these plots my first year just because I have this criteria where a plot has to be the basal area of all the trees within our 10, um, 10 meter in diameter plot have to be um, that tree type. Mm. And in a mixed forest, that can be really complicated. Yeah, right. <laughs> this has happened before, right? Mm-hmm. Like, chestnut went extinct. Like, there are a lot of examples of things, like the passenger right. pigeon. Like, there are a lot yeah. of previous examples in literature that are these scenarios where a species went extinct and we had a lot of questions afterward that mm-hmm. we couldn't answer at that time. We didn't know the associates with those. Like, we didn't know at the time that we needed to be asking those questions. Right. And so a lot of the motivation just comes from that sort of, um, you know, framework of, well, we know it's about to go extinct and we know that we'll have questions when it's too late. So we should ask those while we can. Right. I actually heard about Hubbard Brook and Liz's work from another scientist, a researcher named Laurel Symes, who's doing her postdoc on bioacoustics at Cornell. Laurel records birdsong at Hubbard Brook. When Liz and I took a walk around the property, I saw several of Laurel's audio recorders set up, actively recording, catching tons of data. Laurel has been traveling recently, but I was able to speak to her by phone about her work and also about some cool tools that you can use when you're in the woods to better understand what birds are around you and how they're communicating. She told me a bit about her work over the past few years and how she came to study birdsong and bioacoustics. 
So my name is Laurel Sines. I'm the assistant director of the Bioacoustics Research Program at Cornell. And my background is very much in understanding how and why animals produce sound. So we've done a variety of projects um, in different parts of the United States. And some of those projects are aimed at um, monitoring and conserving animal populations. Some of those projects are aimed at understanding um, why different species use different types of sounds, how those sounds move through the landscape and things like that. So before I was here at Cornell, I was at Dartmouth College. And while I was there, so before I was at Cornell, I was at Dartmouth College. And one of the projects I was working on there was recording um, Don Bird Chorus at the Second College Grant. Yeah, while I was at Dartmouth College, one of the projects that I was involved with was recording Don Bird Song Chorus at the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest, which is a piece of property in central New Hampshire where there are all sorts of experiments running. So everything from hearing created ice storms through nitrogen supplementation, through looking at different um, land management practices. So the project that we were working on there is understanding um, the bird, the, um, the breeding behavior of birds. In the morning, um, when you wake up and you hear all the birds singing, we call that a dawn chorus. Cool. So what we were doing in the um, Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest was using um, audio recording to see what bird species were there, um, how often they were singing, and where in the habitat they were found. Yeah, I'm really interested in using sound to understand where animals are and what they're doing. So that birds are a really nice example of that. Um, um, so from there, I went to a research position at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And it was built around that project and using recorders across space to measure um, how many species of birds were using different habitats, what time of year they became active in different places, um, how much of the year they were singing. What, and one of the things we were trying to understand is could you use the, um, the number of bird calls to determine whether they were nesting one time or whether they were nesting twice and whether some of the nests had failed. So if they are all successful the first time, they might sing and then stop for the season. But if a lot of those nests are lost to predation or late cold weather or any other events, if the birds re-nest, then they keep singing to advertise their territories. And so um, it's possible that you could use the amount of singing to understand something about um, how successfully they're building nests and raising babies. So Laurel's work generates a lot of data. We're talking thousands and thousands of hours of sound. So some of what she's most curious about is how you actually manage so much data to better understand it. Um, so some of the projects that we're working on now, when you are doing projects where you put recorders in the forest and you're listening for birds, you generate just a huge amount of data. So tens of thousands of hours of recordings. And we can go through those by hand and count what birds, how many species you're hearing, how many times they sing, things like that. But it takes a huge amount of time. And so the information is in there, but it's hard to get it out. So one of the projects that I've moved toward working on is using computer models to be able to extract that information. So in the same way that we use voice recognition, like, for example, when you call um, a company and you get routed into their automated server and they say, you know, would you like 
option A, B, or C, and you say option A. Um, we're trying to use technology that's sort of like that to find and identify bird calls. The way that the artificial networks, neural networks work, it's like a, an enormous guess and check problem where we might come up with, the computer might come up with 10,000 different sets of rules for sorting um, these sounds into groups. You know, this is a chickadee, this is a cardinal, this is a blue jay. And some of those systems are going to be really bad. And some of them are going to be a little bit better. So you keep the ones that are better, and then the computer program experiments a little bit with those values and says, well, maybe we'll divide this this way and divide that that way. I'm trying to, we've struggled to come up with a really good way of explaining these. They're sort of complicated. She compares what the computer does with the data to a kind of guess and check process. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about acoustics is that it is pretty fast in the field. So you go out and you set up equipment and then that equipment is running and you want to stay away from it while it runs. So for weeks, you might not see that equipment until you come back and you pick it up. And so during the time that it's running, we do lots of other things. We might be counting birds or following them or monitoring nests or things like that. But there's not a lot of day-to-day -day work in collecting the recordings. Most of the work comes on the far side once you have the recordings and figuring out good ways to analyze them. Yeah, so for example, with things like the, the impending loss of ash trees, um, one of the things that changes a lot is what sort of um, leaf litter there is and what sort of invertebrate or insects there are um, in the leaves. And so this gives us a way to really ask how are different bird species responding to this. Laurel is also involved with a project that we hope to cover more in depth later, which is looking at silviculture and how it's affected by climate change. She's thinking about birds in different managed forest environments as a part of that project. But I've been working with researchers from Dartmouth College who work in a piece of property that's owned by Dartmouth up at the New Hampshire-Canada border called the Second College Grant. And that's a really neat piece of property because it is both a preserved natural area, but also a spot that's used for research on different forestry practices. And so there's different styles of logging that are being done in this area, along with researchers who are following the impacts of different types of logging on everything from the soil nutrients through the amount of leaf litter and um, carbon storage potential in those sites. And so what we've been doing is putting acoustic recorders in these different types of logging practices to ask, do you get the same birds everywhere? Do you get different communities of birds? And so then we get all this data off the recorders and run those through, or we're working to be able to run them through the automated models to be able to identify what species of birds are there very quickly. In terms of the, in terms of the sound um, recognition, I think of that as a tool. So in the same way that when you develop a yardstick, it can be used you know, to measure the number of feet of timber or the height of a kid or the distance between two points. You know, developing the ability to recognize sounds and sound files has lots of different applications. So some of them are certainly conservation. You know, how many individuals, what time of year, um, what interactions are they having between each other? But some of those are also basic research questions, you know. 
So how can you in your day-to-day -day life learn more about birds in the forest and also contribute to this scientific research? If you have a smartphone, you can actually get involved now. So there's a couple different levels of things that people can do. Um, there are some really neat phone apps, including if you have an Android phone, you can download the bird net app. And so you can go out in whatever site and record um, a bird call, and it will try and give you the identification for that call. There's also a visual tool that's for both um, iPhone and Android called Merlin. And so it will give you pictures of all the birds. And if you don't know what something is, you can try to identify it by working through a series of questions. It will ask you how big it is, what are the dominant colors, what is it doing? And then it will give you a list of possible suggestions. Or you can take a picture and submit it, and it will use machine learning to try to identify the picture. And it's actually quite good. So there, yeah, so there's some fun ways to just, you know, if you have kids or if you're just out in the woods to learn a little bit more about what birds are there. Um, in terms of logging practices, you know, things to do or not do to affect bird communities, I don't think we ever, we're there yet to be able to give a really good scientifically informed recommendation from this work. There might be other researchers who, you know, can tell you from other methods, but not from their research yet. Yeah, so, so that tool is what's behind the app right now, and there's also a place that you can go and upload the file, and it will run that tool on it, and then you can download the results. So there are places that you can interact with it. We are currently working toward being having the code in the version that's easy to share and understand. So when you first write code, you know, there's a lot of things that are still being refined, and we're in the process of writing all the, the guides that explain how to use it and what it does. So those things will be available. They're not yet. Thank you for listening to this special Hubbard Brook research-themed episode of the Northern Logger podcast. And thanks to Laurel for the recordings of birdsong you heard in this episode. Here are some more now. This has been the Northern Logger Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Northern Logger Magazine and follow along on our social media for the latest industry news and updates from our travels. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter where you keep you up to date on the latest that's going on with our organization, the Northeastern Loggers Association, and our expos and uh, my travels and anything else you might want to know. And you can subscribe to that by going to www.northernlogger.com. All right, thanks.